Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. Good morning, church. If you'll turn with your Bible, uh, turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 7. Start in verse 54. So we're making our way through the book of Acts. We've, uh, as Pastor Shane last week uh, preached through Stephen's sermon, uh, he left. Um, and he was wanting to get to it so bad, you could tell, but he was, he was such gracious to hold it off for us this morning. And the death of Stephen is such a transitional part here in Acts, and as we will point out here in just a second. But I want to ask you a question. I want you to ponder on this. What is on your bucket list? That, that term was phrased by the movie in 2007. Uh, what do you want to accomplish with your life? Having taken your last breath here on earth, what would you like? when you do take that last breath, to be able to, to think in that moment, I've accomplished this. Uh, what do you want the speaker, preacher, at your funeral, maybe, at, maybe in here or wherever it is held, and you're there in a casket, and they are talking about you in your life, what do you want them to honestly to be, up, to be able to stand up and say, uh, this lady or this sir accomplished this in their life, or their life was about this purpose, or they spent their life doing blank? What would you fill that blank in in your life? Uh, what do you want your life to be about, to stand for? What is on your bucket list? So as you answer that question and go over that in your mind, I want us to look at that in the way that Stephen maybe would have answered that and maybe the way the Apostle Paul would have answered that question. And maybe if your answer to that is different than their, your, to theirs, I pray the Holy Spirit would work in your life and your heart to change that today. And so I want to walk through the text, and we'll start in verse 54. Um, and this is an amazing text. And, uh, and in verse 54, uh, the Apostle Luke is writing, not that he's not an apostle, but Luke was a friend of the Apostle Paul. And Luke is writing this account of the early church. And, he, and we pick up in verse 54, and this is after the sermon that he has given. He's standing before the Sanhedrin, the same council that killed and had Jesus executed. Stephen is standing in front of the same people. In verse 54, when they had heard these things, that is, Stephen's sermon, and why you're there in verse 54, I want to point to verse 51, and, and Pastor Shane pointed this out so eloquently last week. This is his application of his 50-verse sermon, and someone said it's one of the greatest sermons ever preached. He, this is what he said in verse 51. You are a stiff-necked and uncircumcised people. You are uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears. Now remember, he's talking to the Sanhedrin, these Jewish leaders. They take pride in being Jewish. And the one thing different about them than all the others is that they're circumcised men. And they take great pride in this. And he just looked at them and said, you're really not circumcised. Well, that, that's, a great, that's a great blow. And uh, then down in verse 53, he even hits and strikes harder when he tells them, you have received the law, but you do not obey it. What do the Pharisees and Sadducees, what do they boast about most? That not only do they have the law, but they keep the law better than everybody else. In, in the Jewish realm, the Jewish custom, Jewish tradition. They keep it better than anybody else. 
Stephen says, no, you don't keep it at all. Another blow to the ego. Another disrespect. And all that was great. And here's their response. In verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were mad deep. So they were very offended. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. Like, they were growling at him. Like a ravishing dog. I mean, can you imagine? Just slobbering mad, grinding their teeth at what Stephen had said. I mean, they're upset as they can get. But what is about to happen really makes them go even further and even more upset. Watch closely. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit. Now, being full of the Holy Spirit is uh, they resisted the Holy Spirit. In contrast, he, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And what he is about to say is going to get him killed. All that he's already said you think might be enough, but it's not. What he's about to say is what gets him killed. Look what he says. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In verse 57, when they cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears and ran at him in one accord. Like a herd of wild animals, they pinned their ears back, they stopped their ears, and they just, like a herd, they blitz him, they run at him with all their might to kill Stephen, to stone him to death. Why? All because he said he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand. One question I want to think about this morning, why did that get him killed? I mean, he has disrespected them as much as he possibly could, but that didn't get him killed. But when he said he saw the Son of Man at the right hand, that's what got him killed. What is it about that phrase that got him killed? Verse 58, they cast uh, him out of the city, and they stoned him. They stoned him. Now, stoning in that day... Um, you know, I, I figured before studying this, stoning was stoning. People pick up big rock, you know, rocks and throw it at somebody to kill somebody, to stone them. That is, in fact, not how the Old Testament and the uh, Mishnah, which was the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish customs, the way they carried out the law, kind of their tradition. The Mishnah said the way that they were to stone somebody was when a witness had saw somebody commit a crime. They were to take them up um, a cliff at least twice as tall as they were. And the first thing, and it was the witness who saw them commit the crime or blasphemy or whatever it was worthy of death, it was that person who had to push them off the cliff. Uh, and it was just a way of um, assuring that you couldn't just lie about somebody doing anything to have them killed. It was just kind of like a backup, because if you said they did something worthy of death, you had to be careful, because you were going to be the one that had to kill them. So it was kind of a safety precaution there. And so he would push them off, and they would fall. And they said, and the mission said, if they fell face down and it killed them, well, that would be good enough. They didn't have to do anything else. But if that didn't kill them, then the witness, would a big boulder would be on top of that, and they would uh, push that big boulder over that cliff onto that person. Now, if that didn't kill them, they would roll them over, and the second witness, or there, there's only one witness, he would roll another big boulder over to kill the man. Now, if he hadn't died from the fall, and the first boulder and the second boulder, the last resort, the last thing they would do was the assembly would pick up rocks and throw it at him. Okay, it was set up so that was the last thing to be done was to pick rocks up and throw it at somebody, okay? That was, hopefully, they would die the other way, okay? So that was, but what do they do first? They don't do none of the law. They don't, that's their tradition. That's what they live by. They don't do none of that. They are so bad, and they are so angry. They are so cut to the heart, so offended at this son of man statement that they pick up rocks, and they, they don't even stand 20 or 30. They said they rush at him to bash him with these rocks is the way that it's pictured. And it said, and the witnesses in verse 58 laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. One question we have to ask when we're walking through this passage, why does Luke keep putting Paul 
or Saul. Saul is his Old Testament Hebrew name, and the, his Greek name is Paul in, in, Roman, in Greek. Laid down their clothes at the feet of a young name, uh, named Saul. Verse 59. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen would have learned this prayer as a young Jewish boy. Psalms 31, verse 5 says, Lord, whom I trust, receive my spirit, for you have redeemed me. All the, young, all the Jewish homes taught their children to say this prayer before they went to bed at night. So here Stephen is, knowing he's about to fall asleep, or he's about to die. And he prays this prayer, Lord, receive my spirit, for you have redeemed me. And, and verse 60, and he knelt down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Here's what he said. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Lord, don't hold this sin to their charge for stoning me, for killing me. Uh, this is in contrast to the prophet Zechariah in Second Chronicles chapter 24. And in verse 22, when Zechariah is stoned to death by the religious leaders of his time, um, he says to the Lord, Lord sees you and he will revenge me. Okay? Lord will revenge you for this. Stephen is in contrast to Zechariah. What is Stephen saying? Lord, don't revenge this. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Okay? So this is in contrast to that. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here we have Saul again, connected to this story again. Now Saul was consenting to his death. In other words, Saul may have been the one who no doubt was a leader in the Sanhedrin at this time or around. He's got his doctrine in Phariseeology. I mean, he is high muckety-muck in this society. Uh, and he is maybe given the thumbs up uh, in this term consenting to the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church that was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea, Samaria. Look at this last statement we were talking about this week, one Pastor Dave, except the apostles. One of the reasons that the apostles got to stay was that the attack mostly was on Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews, as we've seen through the book of Acts, as Pastor Shane was talking about, were people who had Hellenistic was the Greek term. Uh, it was the Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture. They had taken a lot of the Jewish people, half or more of the Jewish people had taken on the Jewish, uh, or excuse me, the uh, Greek culture of the time. And the way they dressed, the way they lived was more Greek than it was Jewish. And so uh, a lot of those people had come to Passover and the day of Pentecost happened. They'd come from all, it was Jewish people, remember, that come from all over the Roman Empire for the Passover. And so when they began speaking in tongues, began proclaiming the gospel in Acts chapter 2, it was these Hellenistic Jews mostly that heard the gospel and accepted it. Well, they are the ones being persecuted here in chapter 8, verse 1. And did you see where they're scattered to? Judea and Samaria. Does that term come up anywhere else? We'll, we'll get back to it. In, in verse 2, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. That whoever these devout men who buried Stephen, it was offensive. I mean, it was a great risk. It was dangerous to take the body of someone who had died for blasphemy or was a criminal and to give him an honorable burial. He had died in dishonor, and here they are really risking their own lives to bury this man. But these devout men did it because Stephen meant so much to him. And in verse 3, and here's Saul again. And Saul made havoc of the church. That word havoc, the word picture there is a wild animal tearing a carcass apart. A word may, word, one word may be better than a thousand pictures. Uh, and that's what, it, that's what the word means. Entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word.
So I want to ask some questions of this passage this morning. Uh, Three questions, or maybe four, I want to ask and see if we can get some answers for. First, what is God doing in this passage? What's God doing overall in this passage? This is a transition passage. If you remember, the gospel so far has just been all to Jewish people, Hellenistic Jews and Jews all together. We talked about the Passover and 3,000 were saved. Remember when Peter preached? Can you imagine that? 5,000 were saved. I mean, the church is growing of 10,000 or more at the time, but they're all Jewish people. Do you remember chapter, and when Pastor Shane introduced the book, and he said chapter 1, verse 8, would be the outline of the book, and all scholars that I have read and researched agree with Pastor Shane on that. And it said, uh, Acts 1, 8, right? You will receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses where? To, Jer- to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. They had all been in Jerusalem so far. Everything in the church had happened around Jerusalem. But in chapter 8, verse 1, now where did the uh, gospel go? To Judea and Samaria. This is the next part. And what is God wanting to do with the gospel? What's John 3, 16? For God so loved the world. And specifically in that passage, even in John, and, and, and here what we see is the grace of God that the gospel would not just be for the Jewish Gentiles. And unless I'm wrong, all the believers here at Maysville Baptist Church this morning said, thank you, God, for your grace bringing the gospel to Gentile people. Amen? Aren't you glad that he saw fit to do that? And here's the first part where that begins to happen. It was God's plan to do that. Paul would say the gospel uh, is the power of God into salvation for the Jew first and then the Gentile. Thank God that it also comes to the Gentiles. But how did my question here is how did he do that? How how did he do that? He uses this man, Stephen, to do it. I mean, let's think about Stephen for a moment. Stephen waited tables. There was nothing special about Stephen in and of himself. I mean, his sermon is not uh, mind-blowing in no sense. I mean, he's not a great educated man. He he is really uh, a nobody, isn't he? He, He's not really all that important as far as stature and education and might and honor. He's really a nobody. You may have a great resume. You may have accomplished a lot of things, a lot of rewards in this life. Well, listen, uh, God's going to have a hard time using you. That's just the truth. This morning, if you say, I haven't, I haven't really accomplished much in life. I, I really don't have many awards to my name. I really don't have many things I've done. Well, you're doing really good. God can really use you. You see, people can be too big for God to use, but nobody can be too small for God to use. Because isn't that God's plan, isn't it? To take ordinary people, ordinary things. But what is it about Stephen? What is it about Stephen? that God used to do great things. Well, it was that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. From chapter 6 to now, we've seen three times that Philip had received the Holy Spirit of God. And if you and I are going to be effective in the kingdom of God, you and I must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. See, I think we have some confusion in our pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of Baptist churches you don't hear, I'm glad here we talk about it a lot, but a lot of Baptist circles, we're a little scared because of what we see abuses of the Holy Spirit. We don't speak a lot about it, do we? You see, uh, a lot of people think, you know, you get different parts of the Holy Spirit through your Christian life. You see, that's not true. The Bible is very clear. When you receive your salvation, when you were born again, Paul said in Ephesians 1, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. You've got as much Holy Spirit, Christian, right now as you will ever have in your whole life. Here's the question. The question is, does the Holy Spirit have you? The question is, are you surrendered to the Holy Spirit in your life? Because you you will never get any more of him. The question is, will he have you? You know, some people have, uh, in witty of words, said he may be 
president, but uh, resident in my life. But the question is, is he president in my life? Do I am I filled with the Holy Spirit of God? And look, as he pointed Saul out in this passage, you think about one. You may look at Stephen's life and say he was a failure. Nobody got saved. You know, P- Peter preached, three thousand got saved, five thousand got saved. Paul, uh, Stephen preached the same gospel and got three thousand stones thrown at him. You may say Stephen was a failure, but that's not true, is it? He impacted one man with the gospel, as we'll see. His name was Saul. And see, you think about one man. And you think about Saul is going to be, uh, Pastor Jacob made this statement in the 8 o'clock service. I heard him. I'm going to take it from him. He said, um, if there would not have been Stephen, there would not have been Paul. Paul was the one who, uh, Stephen was really the one who um, lived out the gospel in front of Paul. And, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So without Stephen, you don't have Paul. And without Paul, you don't have a missionary to the Gentiles. And God used a man named Stephen. It's a well-documented uh, lineage or tracing. Um, it, there was a, uh, and I'll tell the story very quickly. There was a, a man who in, went in Chicago to buy a pair of shoes. And as he went in to buy a pair of shoes, he was impressed on his heart to share the gospel. He was filled with the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with the shoe clerk. The shoe clerk accepted Jesus Christ that day, and God was passionate about preaching the gospel to lost people. And this man was able to spread the gospel all over America and went to Europe. His name is D.L. Moody. We have the D.L. Moody Institute today in college, and a lot of good things are said about D.L. Moody. Well, D.L. Moody went to Europe preaching the gospel, and he was over there preaching the gospel. Um, a man, uh, he went to a man's church by the name of F.B. Myers, and F.B. Myers kind of preached at a high uppity-up church, you know, a high church, and people were well-educated in that church, and D.L. Moody, his last letter he wrote said, kind of like me, had 40 grammatical errors in it. And so if you know me, it's very similar. And, uh, and after he left F.B. Myers Church, F.B. Myers thought, I'll never, our church will never recover after letting a, a fumbling, bamboozled speaker like that come to our church and never be the same. He was let down. Well, uh, F.B. Myers, a month later or so, was having lunch with a couple ladies in his church. And one lady says, every woman in our Sunday school class has got saved since D.L. Moody was here. And he kept hearing these testimonies of, what D.L. Moody had done in his church and people accepting Christ. And he said he learned what was called the language of the soul from D.L. Moody. And he, he got excited about the gospel after thinking about the way D.L. Moody presented it and uh, went and started spreading the gospel. And he went and became a traveling speaker and come back to America. And as F.B. Myers was sharing the gospel, one day he made a statement in America. He said, uh, understanding the gospel, you may not be willing to surrender to Christ, but are you willing to be made willing? Are you willing to be made willing? And uh, Billy Sunday was sitting in the audience, and he said, you know, that's me. I'm not really willing to surrender to Jesus, but I'm willing to be made willing, if that makes any sense to you. So Billy Sunday uh, surrendered to the Lord, and God used him to be an evangelist and travel around. And, and one day he was sitting, and he made a statement, and the statement was this. The world has yet to see a person fully committed to God. The world has yet to see a, a man or a woman fully, 100% committed to God. And in that, I uh, heard that say was Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham said, I, I want to be that person. Mordecai Ham went and uh, began to uh, become passionate about the gospel and started these big crusades that we are familiar with and know of. And one big crusade he had in Charlotte, North Carolina, it was word around there's going to be a lot of pretty girls there and a lot of pretty boys there. A lot of youth was going to come to this thing. And a, and a tall-legged young man come to see the girls end up hearing the gospel and, and surrendered to the ministry. His name is Billy Graham. And so all of that, all of that, and we know the great impact that Billy Graham had on this world for Jesus, all of that because one man in Chicago, a nobody, don't even know his name, a nobody was led by the Holy Spirit of God to share the gospel with the shoe clerk in Chicago. Here is a nobody, and that is God's plan to use a nobody 
filled with the Holy Spirit of God to do great things, to impact people with the gospel. And so that's what God is doing here. Uh, and the second question I want to ask is I want to go to verse 56. I want to ask the question, why this son of man statement? What was it about? And I've scratched my head and tried to dig into this. Why this son of man statement? I wasn't too familiar with it. But if you'll remember in Luke 14, when uh, Jesus was before the same council, they asked him, before the Senate, they asked him, are you the Messiah? Scholars tell us, and I read a couple, they say this. If Jesus, now I agree, if Jesus would have said, yes, I'm the Messiah, he probably wouldn't have died. That's surprising, ain't it? They, and history shows us there were many people who come before the Sanhedrin claiming to be the Messiah. And they didn't execute him. They didn't kill him. They just said, go on, you're not. If Jesus would have said he was the son of God, which was an Old Testament term for, uh, could mean just the son of David. And we know Jesus' lineage went back to the, uh, of David, the lineage of David. So he could have just said, I'm a son of God and not have died. But he said, this was his statement. You can look at Mark 14. He said, I am I am the Son of Man, and you will see me riding on the clouds, ascending to the Ancient of Days. And that is what got him killed. Right when he said that, the high priest rent his clothes, and they began to beat and uh, execute Jesus that night. All because he said he was the Son of Man. What is it about this Son of Man statement? So as I dig a little bit, and uh, uh, studying this, and went to Daniel, and we don't have time, but you might want to look up uh, later to read Daniel 4 and Daniel 7. Just read the whole book of Daniel, really, if you want to. It's really good. But uh, the Son of Man is just a term of humanity. It just means a, a human. But you see, you remember Daniel was taken to exile. You remember um, when the Babylonians come and um, enslave the children of Israel? And why Daniel is in uh, Babylon. You remember King uh, King Neb, King Nebuchadnezzar, can never say that king's name right. King Nebuchadnezzar has some dreams, and he remember he can't interpret the dream, and he gets all his wise men to interpret the dream, uh, and they can't figure it out, and he's going to kill all of them. And Daniel says, "Wait a minute, King, let me try. Let God give it." Memory does, and so he has this dream one day in Daniel four, and his dream is, is a, of a huge tree. It's like the tree of life. It's got fruit coming off of it. I mean, it's a, uh, it's a big tree. Birds are nesting. Uh, animals are underneath, peaceful, and people are there. It's all good. Well, then it's chopped down out of nowhere. And this, this tree becomes a beast. And he's thinking, what is this? He calls Daniel, his dream interpreter. He says, Daniel, what does this mean? And Daniel looks at him and says, oh, king, you've got a choice to make. You can either be like that tree of life, and God has put you in authority, and you can reign. And he's what he says, you can take care of the poor, King Nebuchadnezzar. You can take care of the poor, you can bless people uh, who don't have, and you'll be a great king. Or you can keep doing what you're doing, ruling with power and might and, and, and all this blood and violence. You can keep doing that and you'll become a beast. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, you don't say anything. And about 12 months later, the Bible says, he's at his palace and he's thinking, look at this. <laughs> look, look at this that I've created with my own hands. How powerful I am. Oh, the majesty that I have. The Bible says before he got it out of his mouth, he was struck down. And he was taken out of the city. He grew hair like an eagle and claws like a beast and was eating the grass of the ground like a beast. Remember what Daniel said? He said, you'll become a beast if you, if you don't rule the way God told you to. Well, then Daniel 7, uh, uh, Daniel, it's the first time Daniel has a dream. And here's Daniel's dream. There's these, and beasts represent these people and the people who follow after Satan and rule against God and rule with violence, Okay. Daniel has this dream, and there's four beasts, and they're mutant, weird beasts. They're crazy looking. And the fourth one is so weird, it can't even be described how nasty looking and, and mutant it is. And uh, then one arises, a son of man arises. 
and he ascends on the clouds. Now, in the Old Testament, what you have to know, what I found, only God rides on the clouds. Nobody else is a cloud rider but God in the Old Testament. And he says the Son of Man rides on the clouds, uh, and he goes to the Ancient of Days, which is God, and he is given dominion and rule and power, that power and dominion and rule of God, and he conquers the beast. Now, stay with me. In Acts, this Sanhedrin, here's what they thought, okay? Here was the thought of the Sanhedrin. We are God's leaders. We are God's chosen people. And as the leaders of God's people, we're going to appoint, we're going to notify who the Messiah is. We're going to point him out. And we're going to help him defeat the beast. Who's the beast? Rome. Remember, they're under Rome occupation. That's really why it was unlawful for them to kill Stephen. That's why they couldn't kill Jesus. They had to go to Pilate, the Roman governor at the time. So they're under oppression of the beast in their mind. But they're going to, uh, they're going to, they're going to be the beast by this Messiah. They're going to wipe the beast out. And Jesus looks at them and says, you've got it all wrong. Here's what he says. He says, I'm the son of man. And here's the irony in the story. You've become the beast. You're the one who's ruling with violence. You're the one who's following after your father, Satan. Remember the beast in the garden, the serpent-like creature that Adam and Eve followed? He said, that's your father. You are the beast. And what is Stephen saying? Stephen is saying, that guy is right. Jesus is right. Not only Jesus, God, the cloud rider, he's the son of man, but you are the beast. You're the one you're trying. You have become the one you're trying to defeat. You are the beast. He says the problem is you. See, we live in a, in, in a time and culture where all the problems are outside of us. I, I heard of, uh, you know, especially, we, and we live in an era where sports figures are so big and so huge, and sometimes they have God complexes like all of us. And uh, Ronaldo uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, who I don't know much about soccer, but I'm told he's one of the best there's ever been, in our, especially in our time. And he was doing an interview. And in the interview, he said that he believed God sent him to earth to show people the correct way to play soccer. Well, um, Lonnie uh, Messi is also one of the greatest players to ever play, I'm told, in, alive in our day. And they asked Messi what they thought about his comment. Messi said, hmm, that's funny because I don't remember sending him. You know, that, that, really, that really is, isn't it? That, that, that could really describe our day. I, I want to analyze something with you here for just a second. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm not making a racial statement. I'm making a worldview statement. Okay? I want to analyze a worldview. There's a growing worldview. It started in the 1960s. It's called the critical race theory. started in Princeton and, and Harvard, and it has grown and grown and grown. And we have seen it climaxed in 2020. And it's a worldview that says this. There are two types of people. They are the oppressed and the oppressor. And all that matters is getting the oppressed out of underneath the oppressor. And it doesn't matter what has to be done to get them unoppressed. It doesn't matter. The means, ju the end, the means justifies the end. It doesn't matter what we do. No matter how violent we become, do we not see this on the news? It doesn't matter how violent we become to free the oppressed. What, are the, what is that worldview saying? I'm making a worldview statement. That worldview saying the problem is a system. The problem is something outside of us. And Jesus says this, and the Bible says the same thing that it said back then. And this is, the truth is still the same. The problem, what Jesus said, it's not what comes in a man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of a man 
that defiles a man. The problem is on the inside. The Bible is clear. We are children of wrath. We are born. Some people think, uh, have a doctrine in the church that uh, you don't become a sinner until you commit a sin. No, that's wrong. Ephesians 2 said you're dead. You're born dead in your sins and your trespasses. We are children of wrath. Philippians 2, Colossians 2, you are dead. That's why Jesus said the only way a person can even see the kingdom of God is if they're born again. Peter says thank you for the new birth. A person must receive the Holy Spirit and must be regenerated to be right with God. And the problem is not outside. The problem is on the inside with humanity. And so that's what Jesus and that's what Stephen is pointing out here. And thirdly, and I, I think this is really the best part, and I want you to see this. God help me. I want you to see this so bad in the text. I pray you point this out to you as I try to help. I want to, as you and I were walking through this passage, did you not see, did you not see the parallel between Jesus and Stephen's death? Did you, could you not see just glaring at you how similar that their lives and their deaths were? Let, let me point something out. Who stood before the Sanhedrin and, and told them they were whitewashed tombs and that um, their father was the devil? Who did all that? Jesus preached like that. Who was filled with the Holy Spirit? Jesus. In verse 56, the Son of Man comment. Did you know Jesus uh, referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title. He didn't refer to himself as the Messiah. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. Did you know Stephen is the only person in the Bible that refers to Jesus as the Son of Man? He's the only one. He's, what's Luke doing? He's going out of his way to parallel Jesus and Stephen. Look at this. He's uh, In verse 58, um, excuse me, 59, when he died, he said, Lord, receive my spirit. Who prayed that when they died? Do you remember? Jesus, didn't he? He said, Lord, receive my spirit before he died. Why did he include that? To parallel Jesus, to echoes of Jesus. Uh, verse 59, uh, verse 60, excuse me, uh, don't charge this against them. Did Jesus not say when he died, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they're doing? Where did Stephen learn to say something like that? He learned it from Jesus, didn't he? Do you see the parallels? Even chapter two, uh, verse 2 of chapter 8, who buried Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, righteous men who also risked their life to bury a criminal. Do you see all the similarities here? Why is Luke putting this in there? I believe it's a couple reasons, but here it is. To Stephen, Jesus sitting at the right hand was more real to him than those about to stone him. Jesus was real to him. Jesus was a reality to him. The Son of Man was a reality to Stephen. And when they encountered Stephen, they encountered Jesus Christ. Christian, my prayer is that when people encounter us outside this church, they would encounter Jesus Christ. But I also want to ask the question, why Paul? Why? It's like Paul look, um, in verse um, 58. You know, Why did Luke put that at the end of that? Why did he say they put their clothes down? Well, everybody knows, I mean, that day, if you're going to stone somebody, you've got to take your big robe off. You're not going to be able to throw too well. I mean, and charge somebody and kill them. They put him at the feet of Saul. Why did he put that in there? Chapter 8, verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death. Why did he put that in there? In verse 3, uh, why did he put that in there? Um, why, why is Saul included in all this? I find it very interesting. Uh, Philippians uh, 3, Paul says, I had it all according to the flesh. Didn't he? he said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrew. Now, his name is Saul. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the tribe of Benjamin is an honored tribe in Israel. Uh, and Benjamin, uh, excuse me, Saul is the greatest name a Benjamite can be named. Do you remember who the most famous Benjamin, uh, Benjaminite is? The first king of Israel, wasn't it? it was king Saul, the very first king. 
And that's what he was named, Saul. He's got the name. He's got the family. He said, uh, I had the education. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a zealot. I was persecuted. I had it all, according to the flesh. Out of all the Sanhedrin, he said, I had more than any of them had to boast about. But interesting, Romans 7, chapter 7, verse 7, something very interesting Paul says. Paul said when the law came to him, when the law, when he really understood the law, when God pointed the law out to him, he knew the law, but when he really got it, that was pointing his sin out. He said, one commandment really got me. It was, thou shalt not covet. What did Paul have to covet? He had it all according to the flesh. What did he, what did he covet? Think about it. Here he is, seeing Stephen living uh, as Jesus. He knows Stephen has something that he don't. You know, chapter 6 is interesting. They, they, uh, Luke points out the synagogue that Stephen was arguing with was uh, Celestia. Do you know what synagogue Paul would have came to from Tarsus when he come to Jerusalem? It would have been to that synagogue because that's where uh, you go to the synagogue, whichever one, when you go to Jerusalem, that your people go to. That's the one Saul would have went to. So Saul was there arguing and hearing Stephen debate in chapter 6. Why is all these connections? Why is Luke putting that? Because Paul was jealous. He was coveting what? That Stephen knew God. That Stephen knew Jesus. He was living out Jesus. You remember what Paul goes on to say in Philippians 3? It's amazing. He goes on to say, he says, I count all of the law, all the things I had to the flesh as nothing compared to knowing Christ. And there's something about knowing Jesus, isn't there, Christian, that brings satisfaction. And there's something about that brings, I know when I die I'm going to heaven. I know I've got a purpose in this life. I, I know I've got peace with God. I know there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And there's a great peace about being a Christian. But when you know Christ, there's also a great craving, isn't there, to know more of Christ. Isn't this amazing? Paul, when he writes Philippians 3, he's, he's planted churches. He's become the great missionary that the world has ever known. He's written most of the New Testament. But he says in Philippians 3, he says, All that I put behind me, all these great things God has used me for, I put them all behind me so that I may know Christ. He said, I want to know more of him. And I'm not talking about a, a knowledge up here. I'm talking about an intimate knowing. I want to know him. Christian, what's on your bucket list? You know, I think about what I got to do next week. I know y'all think about what you got to do next week. There's a thousand things on your checklist probably, aren't there? At least a hundred. But I bet if we were to ask Paul, what do you have to do with the rest of your life? What do you have to do next week? I guarantee you Paul would say, Stephen would say, I want to know him better. I want to know Christ. I want to grow in my knowledge of him. And we said, Paul, we got a thousand other things to do. I bet Paul would say, no, you've got a thousand ways that you can know Christ. A thousand opportunities to grow in your knowledge of Him. And when you live like that, with one thing on your bucket list, to know Him, friend, it changes everything, doesn't it? Changes the way you influence people, when people get around you. You know, I was thinking this week, I couldn't help as I thought about Stephen, think about Sammy House. You know, Sammy, you know, Sammy died a couple months ago, and Sammy was a great soul winner, wasn't he? Sammy was a great member of this church. I mean, he was family, I felt like. Sammy, uh, as he died, I, I, when I met Sammy, I knew Sammy uh, before I come to Maze, when I come about five years ago. And when I met Sammy, though, Jesus was real to Sammy House. Sammy wasn't nothing special. I'm, I, what I mean, he was a lawnmower mechanic. I mean, a good one at that, but I mean, he, he wasn't educated. You know, um, Sammy, you know, if, you, if you're around him, he had a big iPad. He, he was about blind, and he would have to zoom that thing in to see the Bible. But you know, to Sammy House, this was important to him. 
Why? Because he believed that God had spoken. And if God was important, what he had said was, in, was important. And to Sammy, talking to Sammy, there was no doubt in his mind and in his life, Jesus was real. The Son of Man was a reality to Sammy House. I just wonder, the way we influence, do people, when they know you, do they think, you know, Jesus, if I know anything about that person, Jesus is real to them. Paul said, that's how I want to live. Paul said, I want for me to live as Christ. To die is gain. Um, and I think it interesting here in this passage that as Stephen neared death, he gazed upon Jesus. Uh, Jesus. Um, A.W. Criswell uh, was a famous pastor and uh, um, and as A.W. Criswell was um, taking a flight one day, he was a pastor in Texas, as he's taking a flight, he, he sees a theologian that he um, knew very, didn't know very well, but he knew was a famous theologian, great writer, great thinker. And, and he moves seats on the plane so he can have a good theological conversation with this man. And he gets next to him, he works it all out, and he gets next to him, and he's wanting to talk theology, you know, he wants to grind on theology and he, he notices the man is, is kind of off a little bit. The man's not, um, he, he's okay, but he's not wanting to get too deep. And he just asked him, you okay, everything going on? He said, well, he said, my son died a couple months ago, my toddler. Uh, a little more than toddler, he said he was, you know, a young child. He said the son had come home and he was, um, he, he thought he just had a fall bug, you know, like when the kids go back to school, just had a bug. And he said uh, the doctors, you know, told him uh, when they got to the hospital and did some tests that it was more than that. Now, what, I can't remember the exact name of the disease, but um, whatever he had got was, he only had a short period to live. It would just be maybe a week, maybe days. He said, I, I didn't leave his bedside. And uh, he said that as I got closer and closer and we knew death was approaching, he said his, uh, his son told him as he lost his sight and was getting closer to death, he said he plumped his pillow like he always did. And he said, you know, Daddy, I can't see. Daddy, I'm going to go to bed. And he said, son, you're going to see Jesus. And he went to bed. He didn't wake up. And that theologian, excuse me, that theologian told A.W. Criswell, he said, all the theology doesn't matter. What matters? He said, it all does matter, but what's most important is the gospel. Hey. Most important is Jesus is at the right hand. Right. And, uh, and you see that here, don't you? You see him standing, and he's standing at the right hand. And, he, and everywhere else in the Bible, Jesus is sitting at the right hand. But here he's not ashamed of Stephen. Stephen has lived his life, as Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And here Stephen is living out Christ. He's living out the faith of Jesus in front. And Jesus is standing saying, you have not been ashamed of me before men, and I will not be ashamed before you before my Father and his angels. Question, Christian, are you living in such a way that Jesus is not ashamed of you? Are you living in such a way that others around you are impacted because Jesus is a reality to you? If you're not, then you've, sub you've put something else on your bucket list. You've put something else in your life more important. And here's the sad thing. It's not that other things aren't good and other things aren't important. The best thing in life 
is to seek Jesus. The best thing in life is him and knowing him and having fellowship with him. Christian, if that's not number one on your bucket list, you're selling your life short. This morning, listening or online or here this morning, if you don't know Jesus, the same is true to you. One, you know, being a Christian is about having peace of going to heaven, and that, that's all really a byproduct. Eternity is really a byproduct of being a Christian. The best part about being a Christian is what Paul said, I can know Jesus. I can know and be a part of the most amazing thing in this world. We have this idea, don't we, that if we just get, you know, our sins are forgiven and we're all good, but you're missing out on the best part of being a Christian if that's how you see Christianity. The best part of being a Christian is now that I've been born again and my sins are forgiven, I can fellowship with God. I can know Him. I can live with Him. I can have purpose with Him. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're missing, you're missing out on the very best thing in this life. Let's bow our heads and pray. This morning, if I was speaking to you and as you were here in this passage and maybe in the last uh, moments or maybe for a week or two weeks or months or maybe even years, you've known that you don't know Jesus Christ. You know that you're missing out on the best thing in life. I, I, quit. This morning, repent. This morning, quit missing out on the best thing in life, which is Jesus. Turn from evil and wickedness and sin and darkness, it's going to do nothing but keep killing and destroying you. But Jesus said, I come that you may have life and life more abundantly. So this morning, if you're ready, would you pray something like this to God, Father, I want to turn from sin and darkness, and I want to turn to you. I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want to receive eternal life, and I want to receive a relationship where I can know God. That's you this morning. I want to welcome you to the family of God. If you made that decision, we here want to help you. Uh, we want to help you grow in your knowledge and enjoy Jesus and lead other people to enjoy Jesus. So this morning, if that's you, uh, I'm going to ask you as we leave this place, please come in the green room. I'll be on the first door on the left. Please come in there. I want to congratulate you. I want to talk to you. I want to pray for you. I got some stuff I want to give you to help you. If you're not willing to do that, at the very least, please go and fill out our connect card online do something let us know because we're here to help you we need each other secondly Christian are you missing out on the best thing in life Stephen died experiencing the best thing in life and Paul said I want to die knowing the sufferings of Christ so that I may experience the resurrection of Christ Christian if you substituted something in your life for knowing God won't you repent of that say God I'm tired of missing out on the best thing the best plan you have for me which is to seek you and know you. Father, thank you for the death of Stephen. Thank you for the life of Stephen. Lord, more than that, thank you for the death and life of our Savior Jesus Christ and the hope we have in the resurrection and that the hope we have in Jesus is more than just I hope so or I think so. It is I know so. And one day I will get to see Jesus face to face. But before that time comes, help us to live out our faith. Help us to experience Jesus in the here and now, to live it out. Lord, forgive me for putting other things that's more important in my life other than knowing Christ. This morning, I pray your people would get back to you. <laughs> There's so many things in Christian literature and Christian culture that has nothing to do with knowing Christ. Lord, somewhere we've missed it because the most important thing is knowing you and growing in that knowledge. So Lord, this morning, would you call us back to that? We ask in Christ's name. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. 
The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia, 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.